Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, dude, here we are. This this is a big, big catch-up. I think both of us have been pretty busy the last, like, what has it been, like three weeks? Three weeks, maybe a month, yeah. Yeah, it's been a minute. We have a bad habit on this podcast of taking a little too long between recording episodes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we just we both live, you know, busy lives. That's all it is, man. I wish we could do podcasts for a living. We were both just doing the podcast, but life gets in the way some for some reason. I can't understand it. It's weird. <laughs> but we're back. Hopefully the episode will be worth the wait to our fans. We do get messages pretty regularly that are like, when's the next episode, guys? Well <laughs> it's it's now. The answer Answer is it's right now. <laughs> it is now, right? That is the always. That is always the answer. Now is the answer. What have you been up to, man? I know the, man. Part, of, part of the delay is you've been going through such a big life change. How yeah, is for sure, for sure. I've been at the post office for a while now, and when you start at the post office, you're basically their whipping boy, and you have to basically do everything they say. It's called making regular, and once you make regular, mm. you're, you're assigned your own route. And then you get every Sunday off and then you're supposed to get a rotating day of the week off. And I just got assigned my route this past month. But the problem was, is that I was working as my part-time flexible, basically the errand boy for the post office at a station really close to my apartment. So I was able to get there just riding the bus and the bus has actually been free in Denver lately. So it's been really nice and easy for me to get to and from work. But the route they had me working was super long and super, super, super hard. I don't know if I mentioned this on a previous episode. It's possible you guys are like, yeah, you said that in the last episode. I don't, if I did, sorry. Like I said, it's been a while since we recorded. But the route they had me on is like notorious in the city for being just so long and so hard. It's 17 miles, no shade. It's like a hundred staircases. My legs are like cast iron. I'm walking 35 to 40,000 steps every day. Oh my um, God. Wait, did you have a tracker? Do you have a... Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wear, the, I wear a Garmin every day. Okay. And I mean, it's like a, it's like a hundred flights of stairs. We went and did a really hard hike the other day. My wife and I went and did an excessively hard hike. I felt bad because she was lagging a little bit. And I was like, no, let's keep going. And then I realized, oh yeah, she's not climbing a hundred flights of stairs every single day. You know, <laughs> on the one hand, it's good. It's good for your health and all that. But on the other hand, it's like, man, dude, it's summer, it's July, it's 95 degrees outside, there's no shade, walking 17 miles and climbing 100 flights of stairs, it sucks. But I did get assigned this other route, but it's just all the way across town. And this is like the swankest, easiest route you can imagine. What? It's so, it's, so it, it's, it's like 100% flat, there's not a gate, there's not a staircase, all of the mailboxes are right there when you walk by them. If you're going to do a walking route, some carriers do like apartments where they just bring all the mail into a big mail room and just stay in the mail room filling mailboxes. I personally don't like those kind of routes. I like to be able to walk because I like to be able to have my Bluetooth on and listen to my books and so forth. Yeah. Plus, I like walking. I'm like, I enjoy walking as an activity. And so I got this new route, and I haven't, but I haven't been able to get to it because the commute is far enough so that the bus is not really an option. Mm-hmm. So, so I've been sticking at the this really hard route until I was able to buy a car. But 
just yesterday i brought home a car oh uh, sweet yes yeah, so i now have a transportation i bought a 2020 mazda cx-5 it's the touring edition it's probably the nicest car i've ever owned i mean it's got leather interior heated seats bose sound system mazda for me for a long time i was like mazda but lately, in the past like five or six years, they've become right up there with the other top Japanese brands. Actually, while the other Japanese brands have been kind of like shaky, this one's been steady growing. It's got like a 10 out of 10 on car and driver, 5 out of 5 safety rating, 4.8 out of 5 reliability rating. It's only got 30,000 miles on it. And it was all one owner. It's got like a perfectly clean history. I'm real stoked on it. Sounds it like I'm like a Oh man, I did. I, I did. I did so much. I went and test drove a bunch of different vehicles. I wanted to get like an SUV because my wife and I like to go camping and hiking and stuff. And sometimes it's really nice to be able to go to a trailhead and sleep in the vehicle at the trailhead so that you can get up right at the crack of dawn and start the hike. Because sometimes hikes are really long. And I don't know if you do much hiking, but sometimes trailheads fill up because the parking is only like for 10 vehicles or something. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do that trail that day, you have to be there before the sun comes up. Because Holy otherwise, moly, that's wild. It's like that here in Colorado, because hiking is such a popular activity. You have to claim the spot at the parking lot, really, or you have to park like a mile down the road and then walk that mile before you even start, you know, the hike. So having a vehicle that you can sleep in is a big bonus too. And it gets good gas mileage. The sound system is really, really good. So I've been driving around listening to Black Sabbath, you know, with, <laughs> with the sunroof open. Oh, yeah. It's really wild because if you think about, like, when we started the podcast, I mean, what a moment of reflection. It's crazy what life changes during this podcast we have For both sure. gone through, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you were, li you were living in Europe for and now you're well, back. Well, you know, well, no, think about it, man. I was, when we started the podcast, I was uh, in Newport Beach and then COVID hit, right? We started like right before COVID hit. Right before COVID, yeah. COVID hit and I got in the van, right? Lived in a van, traveled all around the country, right? Then sold the van, moved to Sicily, then traveled all around Europe. Now I'm back here in California. You, your change is almost more drastic because... I don't know. I don't know if people realize it. I mean, you do. You changed from living in, you know, the deep south to being in a place in Colorado where you can go hiking like this, that this kind of hiking, you don't do that kind of thing in the South. It's so no brutal. Way. And the bugs, no way, and yeah. the, you know what I mean? We're both from the South, so. No matter where you hike in the South, you're never going to find snow. And you know, I used to have a pretty nice car before I moved to Colorado, but when I moved, I sold it so that we could make the change happen. Yeah. And I could keep the magazine going. And so I've been without a vehicle for more than three years now. Wow. I love to drive. I love road trips and everything. But I'm not like a person who bases my worth on the kind of car I own or, you know, uses it like as a status symbol or whatever. But since I do have to commute for work now, having a vehicle that's like comfortable is nice. And But you're right, man. The life changes have been epic. I feel like every time we record an episode, there's some, you know. <laughs> exactly. What happened now? Some, <laughs> yeah, something, you know, like. But that's just the the personal stuff, though. There's also a big change happening to Infinite Worlds, too. Okay. And since 
And since this is the Infinite Worlds podcast, you know, I feel like we should report on that. But before we do that, let's do you. Let's talk about what's been going on in your life. And- <laughs> oh, it's been crazy for me. I mean, I, where do I even start? But the funny thing is, I also, I'm, I'm in Laguna right now, just looking out. It's gorgeous. Like, probably like 50 feet above the ocean, looking out at my motorcycle, because I don't own a car either. You know, I used yeah. to own a car. I don't own a car either. And part of me has been so resistant to being like, oh, do I want to get a car? Do I not want to get a car? Do I want to plug back into the matrix or do I not? Right. You know what I mean? There's such a big element of that for me. But other than that, what's the latest thing that we have not talked about? I would say maybe I'm not going to go into it too into too much depth, but it was probably one of the most profound experiences of my life. But I remember a few years ago, there was this video that went around about Mike Tyson when he did 5-MeO DMT, which is the the desert frog, right? Wow. Yeah. And so I met this woman who is a keto chef. She published a book on it. And so I interviewed her for my other podcast on my fitness thing talking about it and she told me oh yeah she gives her name's Nicole Thursday and she's like oh yeah and I, I guide people with this you know the snoring desert frog medicine and I was sitting there and dude <laughs> I remember sitting there going oh my gosh I think I gotta I gotta try this man I gotta try it and so I ended up freaking trying it and it was the hands down most profound experience of my entire existence. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. This is coming from a guy who, you know, surfs the psychedelic waves, you know, sort of on the reg. Yeah. This bro, Winston, I went to the other side and it was, there's nothing in the world that compares, there's no psychedelic experience that even compares to it because you absolutely die. And that is it. And it is the most beautiful, most incredible. I can't even, I won't even go into describing it, but it was just, I came back and I was like, you know what it kind of felt like too? This is what was so wild. It felt like, you know, we have all these movies that deal with, like we talked about many of them, like everywhere, uh, everything all at once, whatever it was. And you come back, there's all these different multiverses. It felt like when I came back, I came back into the multiverse. That's how crazy it was. And that's how crazy life has been since then. Well, that's awesome, dude. It's so funny because you're like out here pushing the envelope of reality and I'm delivering mail for the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my fear of psychedelia in my life and definitely probably something that'll happen again in the future too. But right now I'm just trying to get that financial situation sorted out and try to get my retirement and all that. But I get a little on the jealous side when I hear about this stuff. I'm like, yeah. that, sounds, uh, Wait, that sounds fun. Dude, you know what though, man? Honestly, what this is what probably the most sci-fi or psychedelic aspect of it at all is all of these experiences have led me to in my regular life to look at life itself being much more psychedelic 
where mm. do you know what I mean? Like, like what? Yeah. What a lot of I've de- now dealt with three different shaman, you know, that have kind of guided me through this because none of these experiences I've like done on my own, and I really don't recommend that people do that. I don't. I have. I kind of have two things that I say to people: is that only do it when you feel called to do it. It may not be your time because, dude, I I, I went through you know, 10, 15, 20 years between when I was younger, you know, so. I, I think you need to feel called about it, you know. And I knew when she mentioned this that this was the thing I was supposed to do. Like I have a lot of friends that now are doing ayahuasca, and I feel no call to do that yet. I might in the future. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens because I'm yeah. sure that's going to happen. But one of the things that each of them have said is that this medicine, and you probably experience this too, is like all it's doing is opening up inside of you so the medicine is really right. you're the medicine and that's why everyone's experience is different this is just opening up this but there are but when i but coming back i view like the the world i'm like oh i am in the matrix that's why i think that movie is so powerful because the metaphor was so real right you want right. to unplug or you want to stay in you want to unplug but even if you unplug when you go back in it's like, dude, you're gonna, you're never gonna be the same. You know, you're gonna view everything. So that's kind of been the cool thing about coming back and going, oh yeah, it really is kind of fucking. We're in this matrix, you know. No one understands reality. That's why we do this podcast, right? Exactly. That's why we're doing yes. this. It's like to try and understand what. What do we always say? What it means to be human. That's it. <laughs> you know, I've got my issues with being frustrated with the human race. But the thing that frustrates, the thing that frustrates me the very, very most about the human race is when somebody, anybody from any background, from any religion or philosophical background, claims to have the answer. Mm. They're like, "This is the answer." I'm always like, "Just shut up! Exactly. Just shut up!" You don't have the answer. You have your idea of the universe. You have your perspective, and that's all. That's and that is it. And you might share that perspective with other people, but that's doesn't it doesn't make it the master perspective. No, and we're all just probing it. And that's the great yeah. thing about sci-fi is you know the like, for me yeah. it's sci-fi is psychedelic. Life is psychedelic. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's science too, you know what I mean? That's why I'm such a fan of science because science is not ever saying this is the definitive way things are. Science is like, this is what we understand at this point. You know what I mean? And and when we understand more, we'll change our understanding. As we learn, we understand differently. That's important. That's really important. And if you can't allow for changes in data to change your perspective, then you're not really alive. You're not really living. You're not really, you're not really thinking. No, and I did, and that's, you know, we kind of, now I guess we'll lead into what we've been into. One of the things that I've been really like blown away by is the new James Webb telescope and how, right? And how they're like, it's fantastic. This thing is like, they're saying, wait a minute, the big bang may all be wrong because we're seeing galaxies that are so much older than should be there. It's right. breaking our models of what reality is, you know, what we thought reality was. And so i kind of been like diving down that rabbit hole too. Have you like seen or followed any bit of, any bit of that? 
A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I follow several different science blogs and I read about it. This intro is getting a little long, guys, but we are going to actually talk about the topic of this episode. But, you know, this is our podcast, so we're going to talk about what we want. Uh, Here's the thing is that like when scientific models become disrupted, like the, you know, consensus ideas become disrupted, some people like to say, oh, look, that idea got proved incorrect or potentially incorrect. That's evidence of God. That's evidence that my religion is correct. That's evidence that my other ideas are correct. And it's just simply not the case. It's not true that just because science is learning, in no way does that support these unsupported ideas. Yeah, it's true that some ideas that we thought were for sure are disrupted. Subatomic physics has shown us a lot of that, you know what I mean? The way the subatomic particles behave has been disrupting physics for the past quarter of a century. And, you know, the laws of physics kind of got thrown into the air. And a lot of people are like, oh, see, science can't prove anything. But science not being able to necessarily prove things or have one all-time definitive answer to questions doesn't mean that things that have no evidence at all are automatically correct. Well, I I think think what's really cool about it is I love to hear scientists who are so excited when a long-standing belief of theirs becomes disproven or questioned because their idea is, okay, good. If we can disprove something that we believed, then we're going to be getting closer to the truth. Exactly. Right. Exactly. The idea is not to prove any system of belief. The idea is to find the correct answer. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We're not starting with this is how it is. Let's try to prove that. Such as the case with religion or, you know, lots of other schools of thought. The idea is to learn what the actual answer is, no matter what it is. No matter what it is and not attach emotionally to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's so important for people. And it's such a distinction in thinking that people, some people just for some reason cannot get their head around, Yeah, you know? And it's very frustrating to me. I grew up as Carl Sagan as my role model. Mm-hmm. And just hearing that that philosophy of you have to be able to doubt these ideas. You have to be able to accept new information. Like I said before, no perspective is the 100% correct perspective. Not even Carl Sagan's. But the idea that you have to be flexible with your thinking, I think is really, really important. One thing that really helps you become flexible with your thinking is, you know, like you said, some psychedelics. <laughs> and, and, one, and one more thing I will bring up in regards to now we're going to transition into sci-fi. Did you watch the okay. new trailer for the second part? Oh, of yeah. Time? Oh, yeah. Okay. I've got two trailers right now that I'm, that's got me, that have got me really excited. Uh-huh. The Dune trailer looks great. It looks excellent. Man. I think it's going to be better than the first movie because the first movie had to necessarily lead to sort of a dead stopping point. Yeah. Like that was just the, it had to, just because of the nature of the screenplay. So the second one will lead to a culmination and a finale. And there's also a lot more of the, like you said, like the psychedelic stuff in the second part of this. So you know it's going to be cool, and I'm really excited. Yeah, for that. because he's got to take the water, you know. It's right, like, exactly. Yeah, that's when his awakening. Yeah, his awakening begins, like in his hero's journey. What did you think about, about Fade, the character of Fade, who was played by I think like, Sting in the original? Totally different. You know, they've, they've reimagined most of these characters. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm, I like to reserve judgment until I've seen it. Mm-hmm. You know, but. Uh, 
I think it looks good. Look, the character looks good. What's the actor's name again? I don't know. He looks really cool, though. Really different, you know? Yeah, it's Austin Butler who played Elvis in the Elvis oh, movie. Oh, are you kidding me? He was so yeah. good in Elvis? Oh. Yeah, I didn't care for that movie very much, but I thought he, he was, really was good. Yeah, me too. He was amazing. Wow. Okay, cool. I'm pumped. When you think about it, it's not that different than the Sting version of that but definitely i mean you know are we gonna see him we're gonna see him in a loincloth you know that's really the the, the real the real question (laughs) exactly well it looks much more true to the book in the sense that they show the gladiator fight that he had that was such a pivotal introduction to his character in the book and by the way I went back after watching the movie. I was so pumped. I mean, the trailer. I went back and watched the OG version, the David Lynch version, and I loved it. I loved it. (laughs) It's so underrated. Even David Lynch hates it. There's so many people that trash on it, but it's 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 iconic in so many ways. Like I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. Me neither. It was so good. So, anyways, that's what I've been kind of. I think I've watched that trailer. 10 times so what's got me excited and i know this is like a me thing is i've watched the teaser trailer for godzilla minus one oh i haven't seen that yet it's the new toho godzilla it's their follow-up to shin godzilla but it's different it's not like shin godzilla it's a new design of godzilla it's a live action film but it's really cool because it really speaks to like the heart of the godzilla story in a way that we just talked about because the movie is set right after World War II, like right at the end of World War II, when Japan is completely destroyed. Japan is in chaos, and then Godzilla attacks them. When they're already been conquered, and then Godzilla shows up. So way more of an origin story. Kind of a throwback to the original. The director described it as misery on top of misery. Wow, that's heavy. I really like that because a lot of the time the Godzilla stuff ends up being a little too goofy, you know, a lot of the time. It's just so goofy, and I really like to see the versions of him that are what I like about the character, that force of destruction, that force of nature, technology escaping man's control and coming back to destroy him. Speaking of which... One more thing that I'm just thinking, you know, the prequel to even the Godzilla you're talking about just dropped in movie theaters... And I definitely want to see that Oppenheimer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's the next thing that was going to come out of my mouth. Yes. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, yeah. I haven't been to the theaters in a long time, but Oppenheimer is absolutely one I intend to see in theaters. I don't care if it's four hours long. Me too. I actually read a review that called Oppenheimer a prequel to the Godzilla movie. Really? Uh, oh. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> that's awesome. So funny. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. That's a lot of talking. <laughs> yeah. So, so today we are talking about MacGuffins, one of the coolest aspects of all movies, really kind of the engine behind right. every movie. How would you explain to people who aren't aware of what it is? What is a MacGuffin? Okay. So a MacGuffin, if you haven't heard this term before, is a literary or storytelling device. This is my own words. I'm not reading an actual definition here, so I'm getting as close as my understanding allows me, is a literary or storytelling device that is an object that drives the actions of the characters, that motivates the actions of the characters, and therefore and thereby drives the plot of the story. A great example, when people talk about the MacGuffin, the example they most often give is the Maltese Falcon in the story, The Maltese Falcon. 
And the Maltese falcon is made of jade, if I'm not mistaken. But it's a statuette of a falcon that is missing that drives the characters to find it. And this is a classic storytelling device. And it's been used since storytelling began. And it continues to be used now. It's used in movies all the time. And sometimes it's easy to see that a plot has a MacGuffin. And sometimes the MacGuffins are more cleverly obscured in the plot. And we're going to talk about all those today. So we've both come up with a handful of examples. Again, this is kind of like one of our top 10 episodes where we both come up with some examples. We're not ranking them or anything like that. We didn't both come up with 10, but we both came up with examples independently. So we're going to kind of trade back and forth with our examples and kind of talk about them. I'm going to go first on this one because I have an example that's a really obvious example Mm -hmm. and also brings in another very similarly related concept that I think should be introduced before we start the discussion. Okay. Okay, the example I'm bringing first is unobtainium. (laughs) And unobtainium is the element that's being searched for in the Avatar films. I'm not a huge Avatar fan. I love James Cameron, everybody knows that. But I I think the Avatar films are thrown together. I mean, not obviously not production-wise, but (laughs) storytelling-wise. One of the really glaring examples of how kind of thrown together and cobbled together the stories are, besides being called like Fern Gully in space or Dances with Wolves in space, is that unobtainium, this actual plot device, the MacGuffin of this franchise, is the word unobtainium is actually a word that's being used in the science community for 75 years or more. Really? Yeah. Unobtainium is a shorthand lingo for any element that you need to complete a project that's extremely difficult to get a hold of. Whoa. An example would be how lithium is going to be in five or 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. It's just extremely hard to find, extremely sought after, but necessary to complete a task. So that's what unobtainium means as a concept. And it's so similar to a MacGuffin because it's something that you need in order to move forward. Mm. And uh, I did not know that that was a word. It was like, for for me, I was like, that's kind of a cheesy word when I saw Avatar. I'm like, could you be any more cheesy? Unobtainium. Unable to obtain. (laughs) It was like a slang that scientists working on advanced research use with one another. Wow. And James Cameron, and again, I know how successful the Avatar movies are, and I know there are Avatar fans out there, so please don't take my bashing is like hate or anything but the script is so lazy and this is just such an example of how, of how lazy it is he literally just was like yeah what's the thing they say on titanium yeah let's do that oh, let's it just call it that. Like a placeholder where when he was writing the script he was like oh we'll just call it on titanium from now we'll come up with a name later exactly Exactly. That's my first example. The reason that the humans are on Pandora in the first place is because Pandora has unobtainium. And that's what causes the plot of that movie to move forward. That's what motivates all of the human characters and sets all of the events of the franchise into motion. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I will go into mine. I wanted to pick a movie that I don't even think we've talked about this yet. But the 2016 movie, Midnight Special. Did you see that movie? Oh, man, yes. That's really underrated. I actually quite like that movie. I like that director's movies. Yeah, Jeff Nichols, man. He's amazing. Yeah, Jeff Nichols' movies are really good. (laughs) Yeah, and they're like this weird kind of like indie, but all they have this undercurrent of like the tone is so 
kind of dark and heavy, right? And Take Shelter is like one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, I think it's like one of, that one of the most underrated. It's wild, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, Not a sci fi movie, but. But so cool. So this one stars yes. Michael Shannon and very kind of reminiscent to me of Firestarter, the, um, the, the, the old Stephen King book, and then the Drew Barrymore movie. I didn't see Firestarter. They did a remake, right? I don't think I saw that. I think they've done two remakes now. A Firestarter. Yeah, they've tried it several times and it keeps being like, meh, I think. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So It's a great book, though. It's an awesome book. <laughs> so there's this chase. Michael Shannon has an eight-year-old uh, child and there there's an Amber Alert. We start with that for his son. And the boy, really, you have all these forces that are trying to get him there's a religious cult. That's where, like, Jeff Nichols, like, this becomes, it kind of has this heavy element because you got an Amber Alert, you got this cult, you got this little boy, and we, we learn that he has, like, powers, like, telekinetic powers. And that's why I think I was saying that it really kind of reminds me of Firestarter in that way. Sure. And so there's this big chase to get the boy and the boy forms the MacGuffin. And what I like about using the kid as a MacGuffin is because oftentimes the MacGuffin is something like the Maltese Falcon, right. where we don't have an emotional attachment to it. But in this sense, it's really kind of heavy because you're like, man, this little boy, you develop feelings for him. You're like, oh no, they're trying to get hold of him. And so this is like kind of another facet of the MacGuffin. Right. Yeah. I, when I described it earlier, I talked about how it's an object. But what I didn't mention is that it's not necessarily an object. It can be a character in the story as well. In this case, one of the protagonists of the movie is the MacGuffin. Yes. What I loved about this also is that you had this evolving aspect of the MacGuffin where you, at first you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? What's this boy? Da, 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 da. Then you learn that he has these powers, these extraordinary powers. And so you've got this like chase and that's kind of what a MacGuffin oftentimes sets up, right? Is you've got right. multiple yes. parties that are in a fight to try and get hold of this particular thing. And whether right. it's animate or inanimate. And what, but like I said, what I loved about this one was that, you know, you start to become so, you develop, for me, I developed different feelings for the boy where it was at first I was feeling sorry and there was like, oh no, there were, you know, this kid's been kidnapped or whatever's going on. I think with this one, you have that story of, okay, a kid's been kidnapped, but has he really been kidnapped because it's a family member? Is the family member actually trying to take the kid? There's that ambiguity, which creates this emotional right. tension. And then you start to realize, whoa, this kid has freaking superpowers, right? And nobody plays like morally ambiguous and difficult to read like Michael Shannon. Oh, right. Yeah. You're like, wait, is he, is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? It's impossible to tell. And that was important for this movie because, you know, the Amber Alert being that, in that thing where we're always like, okay, what's going on? Is this, is the child in danger of the ch trying to take, or is he taking the child? What's going on? And so, and he was perfect for that. And the, uh, 
the ending for me with this one is so dope. It's so sci-fi and spoiler alert, right? But if you haven't seen it, see it, turn this off or fast forward. But in the end, there's like, the boy is like rescued in this like uh, almost close encounters like situation, right? With, with this alien race. Very cool ending to this movie. Yeah. It's just like the movie itself is just kind of like a action thriller for the most part, but then it slowly starts to build towards a sci-fi sort of thing. Yes. At the, at the end, it goes full sci-fi. Full sci-fi where you're like, yeah. yeah, here's the payoff. Here's the payoff. Here's the payoff. So anyways, All right. what's your next one? Okay. So, well, I'll go ahead. I'm kind of skipping around on my examples here because I didn't, like I said, I didn't have them ranked or whatever, but since you picked a, an example of a MacGuffin that was a character that was a protagonist, I decided I'll my, just now that I will make my next example a character that is an antagonist. My next example of a MacGuffin is the xenomorph alien from the Alien franchise. Mm. Because, okay, yes, the alien itself plays the part of the antagonist in the film, or at least one of the antagonists. But the reason that all of this happened is because the Wayland yutani Corporation sent them out to get and collect the alien sample and bring it back. Oh, you're right. You're right. The alien is the MacGuffin object as well as being the main antagonist. Oh, man, that gave me chills thinking about that. You're right. Because they set the movie up where this right. is the MacGuffin, and then it's like, okay— you can have the MacGuffin. Here you go, right? Right. And then again in the second film, the second film does the same sort of device. That discussion between Ripley and Paul Reiser's character where she's like, we're going to destroy it, right? Not to collect it, not to bring it back. And he's like, that's right. But then they totally are trying to bring it back. Again, it's all these different forces trying to gain control of this object. And, you know, think about that, man. I mean, it's kind of like we're in this reflective moment in time, I feel like, where the, the metaphor of sci-fi, especially in this context, is so powerful for today because really what you're talking about is nuclear power, right? So much of sci-fi between Godzilla and this is, do you really think that we should be pursuing something that is so powerful that it can destroy all of humanity. Why? Absolutely. That is insanity. In whose hands does the nuclear football rest? It's so powerful and it can fall into the wrong hands. We've got that situation with, you know, with nuclear power. We've got that situation with gene, the editing of the genome, right? We're going to be able to now change what humanity, right? Are we going to allow that or not? Are we going to allow human cloning? Are we going to allow? And now... As of the past, you know, really eight weeks, 12 weeks, we're dealing with the exact same thing with AI in such a sense that all of these, you know, AI scientists are coming together and writing letters and saying, do not do this. And we're doing it anyways. (laughs) We're doing it anyways. We don't care. It's not going to stop. We're going to pursue it and just hope. That, you know, and, and the question is really not whether or not we do it because it's going to happen. Who's going to control it? And that makes these things real-life MacGuffins, you know? Yeah. And that is the MacGuffin. And you want to talk about, you know, a MacGuffin in real life. 
you know, you've got Google, you've got Microsoft, you've got Apple, you've got the most powerful corporations in the world spending hundreds of billions of dollars to get this MacGuffin because they know if they get it and they can control it, they are going to control, you know, the 21st century and the future of all mankind. They wouldn't be investing that kind of money if they didn't think that. Absolutely. So heavy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Where else would we be able to really pursue these kind of questions with outside of sideline? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm getting some nice birds singing on your end. Are you Uh, you really? Yeah. And this heavy conversation is just bringing me just a moment of great joy. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) I live in the city, so I have to go on hikes to hear the birds sing. No, I'm up in like the cliffs of, of Laguna. It's so beautiful, just overlooking everything. So yeah, it's amazing. So I'm up now, right? Yep. I think I probably talked about this one. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And if I have, I don't I don't remember, but the nineteen eighties movie Repo Man. Oh man, that's a great example. Right? I love that movie, but what a great example. One of the best movies I've ever seen. It's always been my favorite. It starts Emilio Estevez, who, you know, kind of has faded into to the backdrop of hit film history, but he is Charlie Sheen's brother. And this is like one of his early, early movies. This was a 1984 film that was written by a film student at USC. So it's as indie as it gets, right? And the coolest thing, I think the reason that this movie is so incredible and the reason that people should watch it is because think about the movie. It came out in 1984. It was written probably in 1981, 1982. This is when punk rock really started to infiltrate, not just coming from the Sex Pistols, but the, the aftermath of the Sex Pistols and how we started. It was kind of the birth of American punk rock culture. And this... Especially the Southern California punk rock right. scene. Southern California punk rock. And that's what did the backdrop of this movie. And that's what makes this movie so radical. You know, is yes, you see, now we have skateboarders and punk rock and all. But this movie, to me, encapsulates the origin and the birth of that scene better than any movie, not even sci-fi. Because it's so gritty. The kids are so gritty, right? It's, oh. The Circle Jerks appear in the movie. The band, the Circle Jerks, are in the movie. They play like a lounge band during one scene in the movie. So they, it's an extremely punk rock movie. So punk rock. And Emilio Estevez, like, works. I think he's working at some shitty job at, like, a convenience store. And yep. the ethos of it is so great because I think he's stocking different types of products. And instead of being a brand name, it'll just say milk. It'll say, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like this. That movie's got a lot of really good artistic decisions, but that's one of my absolute favorites. It's that ethos of the punk rock thing it is such a driver that they're like, it's a, it's a commentary on consumerism, right? And capitalism. That we're going to be like, listen, you brainwash, you know, we're not even going to put yeah. a brand on here. We're just going to put milk and this and this. 
I don't know. There's something about that. Beer and yeah, <laughs> you got to talk about the MacGuffin in the film now. Oh yeah. So the movie starts and there is a character who gets pulled over. He's driving this piece of shit, like K car, whatever it is. And he gets pulled over by a cop and he is all like fidgety. And what was the name of the, uh, the character who played that? Fox Harris. Yeah. yeah. Right. So Fox Harris gets pulled over and he's driving this piece of crap Malibu and the policeman pulls him over and he's all fidgety and just like all screwed up in his head. And the police is like, can I look in the back of the car? And mind you, this is his Indian film. This has ever been filmed, and it's so good. Um, and so he's like, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to do that? And so he goes back, and he wants to see the trunk. He opens the trunk, and there's like this Pulp Fiction kind of moment where we see the, the policeman open the trunk, and then this blinding white light hits him when he opens the trunk. We don't see what's in it. And all of a sudden, we see his skeleton. The effects are so great. And then his body, he dies, right? He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's vaporized. Yeah, and we only see his boots on the highway. And then the car takes off. And clearly, from that moment on, we know what is in the question, like in Pulp Fiction, what the heck is in that trunk is what we want to know. And what's in that trunk forms the MacGuffin for the movie. And so anyways, Emilio Estevez's character is working in this convenience store, he gets fed up with it, he quits, and he becomes a repo man. And repo men do what? They repossess cars. Right. Right? And so then an alert goes out, a report goes out that they want to repo and find this car, this Malibu, that has the MacGuffin in it. And so then you've got these different repo men groups who are fighting amongst themselves. The government is trying. So everyone is trying to, again, like you were saying, it's a chase. They're giving chase to try and get to this MacGuffin. Yep. Again, it's a superpower. It's extremely dangerous, mysterious. You mentioned the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. I can't believe that Quentin Tarantino didn't see this movie and go, oh, I'm going to do exactly that same thing because it's just like that. Like, no, it's ways about it. Yeah. The mystery that it sets up, there's something to be, I think that what's so cool about the MacGuffin is you see it take different shapes. Like we were saying, sometimes it's an inanimate object that we know about, the Maltese Falcon. Sometimes it's a character, like you're saying, like the good character and then the, the the dangerous character, and then sometimes we don't even know what it is, and the power of not knowing what it is, and the intrigue is kind of what drives the movie. So that, the, I think our examples are running together really nicely on this one. <laughs> I'm going to stop real quick and just say that if you haven't seen Repo Man, and you have even the faintest interest in punk rock or like indie film, go see Repo Man. Just find it and watch it. It is just such a fun, cool, quotable, I quote it all the time, Definitely watch that movie. It rules. Again, it's low budget, of course. It's, it almost comes across like a student film sometimes, but it is just one of the coolest movies. So definitely watch that. Okay, so that brings me to my next example. Mm -hmm. I picked the Genesis device from Star Trek Three. Mm. Two and Star Trek Three. It's actually used in several, kind of like the continued plot of these movies from the Wrath of Khan and from Star Trek Three. What's it? The Search for Spock. Basically. 
The device is a technological device that can terraform a dead world. It can cause an entire planet to go from being like a barren wasteland to being what they call in the Star Trek universe a Class M planet. I actually don't know if Class M is something that's used in science as well, but I've always heard it used in Star Trek. That's why I know it from, so it's possible that it's actually a science term as well. And it drives the plot of both Khan in the second movie, Khan uh, played by Ricardo Montalban, and then the Klingons in the third movie. And this thing is so powerful that if you use it on an already populated planet, it'll re-terraform it and it'll kill all of the animals that are already there. All the humans are already there. So it becomes like both an incredible power for good and an incredible power for destruction and evil. And it's definitely the plot device behind two movies in a row in a big franchise. Which is huge. That's amazing that they were able to just reuse that, right? Yeah. It falls again into that discussion we were having about in the wrong hands and the struggle for keeping the thing in supposedly the correct hands. Mm -hmm. Because Khan Singh wants to use it to destroy worlds and the Klingons, they also want to use it for destruction, or at least they want to use it as the bomb threat to gain power and have leverage against the Federation of Planets. So cool. The Khan character is so cool. Is there a new Star Trek movie coming out? For some reason, that just came into my mind. I'm like, wait a minute. is there? I actually don't know what's going on with the new Star Trek because the... Paramount Studios have taken over Star Trek development, Mm -hmm. and Paramount Plus just canceled one of their Star Trek series called Star Trek Prodigy, and it was an animated series geared towards younger people. Mm -hmm. They just canceled it and deleted all of its contents from their streaming service, and there was a lot of rumors going around that they were scaling back the Star Trek universe completely. And then, right when that was going on, this writer's strike happened. Yeah, I think they, the, the story is that they, they deleted all, even though they already own it, they deleted all of the episodes from that series, so they didn't have to pay residuals to the actors. And so, brutal, right? Like, on the one hand, you want to see Star Trek, but on the other hand, is like, how can you support studios that do shit like that? I know. And that's, you know, you know Matt Damon was talking yesterday about the actor strike and a big part of, you want to talk about, this goes right back into it. It's one of the biggest issues that they're striking about, both in actors and writers, is the use of AI in movie making. And I was like, oh, is it really realistic that they're going to be using AI for writing? Well, not maybe not now, but soon they will be. But even more importantly for the actors, what the actors were saying is one of the big deals, like someone like Matt Damon is not, does not need a union. Right. He's right. he's got enough money. But what he's saying, I'm not striking for me. I'm striking for the people that are making twenty six thousand a year because that's how much you have to make to keep your health insurance. And right. He said so those people depend upon residuals. And so it becomes the real issue is what they're what they're fighting against and they're trying to, you know, make sure this doesn't happen is what they're fearful is going to happen is that producers and production companies like Paramount, what they're going to start doing is, you know, in any big movie, you've got extras. I've been in movies, been on movie sets where, you know, there were three, four hundred extras. And so what they're what they're thinking is going to happen is these big studios are going to get extras to sign 
waivers that say we're going to scan you and scan your face when you're filming. And then from here on out, we won't need extras. We won't need extras. We'll just use your scans and you've already signed over everything and you'll never be paid again. Yeah, one day's work for the use of your likeness for forever. the rest of from now on. Forever. And now we no longer have to pay actors and it will get to the point. I mean, we really are that close to doing it. I I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about a Drake song that went viral, you know, and Drake wasn't even, didn't sing. It was just an AI reproduction of his voice and an AI that wrote the lyrics. And it was like, and this thing went viral. And it's like, is that where we're, how are we going to protect ourselves? Not just, it's of course the forefront and the fringes of AI incursion are on things like this, like actors or writers, it's coming for everybody. It could even be coming for mail carriers, like in your situation, you know, because, okay, well, we've got a, a robot that can deliver mail and we just connect it with an AI. It's done. Which is insanity. What are, where does that leave us in 20 years or our kids in 20 years, you know? Have you ever seen Wall-E? You know what the humans yeah. look like? Yeah. Like in Wall-E, yeah. just sit, sitting around in chairs, drinking our meals through a straw. Yeah. It's crazy, huh? Yeah, it sucks. It, it really <laughs> does suck because people talk about the AI destroying us through, you know, bombing us or sending out like gun-wielding Terminators to shoot us to death or whatever. But really all they got to do is just replace us. Oh, no two ways about it. It's and, and, and We're so close on the edge. And, and sci- that's why, again, sci-fi is so critical because for an understanding of this, but we are so close and on the edge of a dystopian future because of this AI. And I think that's what they're, you know, as I listen to the debates, it's like we're not saying it's going to be Skynet. That's not what people are saying. They're just saying that the incursion and the taking away of jobs like Uber takes away jobs from taxi drivers and Airbnb takes away jobs from hotels. And these things are incurring, creating, they're taking away and slowly sucking away jobs. We're to the point where when we reach 15, 20% of jobs that have been replaced, the whole economy stops working for everyone, not just 20, 15% for everyone. It stops working. And the only people that benefit from this are the people who own these companies. That's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Nobody else benefits except for, you know, not having to do the work. But if you don't do the work, how do you earn a living? How do you earn a living? And that's where you, you know, Andrew Yang with UBI and universal basic income, they're like, we got to do this now and we have to tax these companies if they're going to be using AI and these things to replace jobs, then they need to pay exactly that amount of money back into the system so we can distribute that wealth for UBI. Because make no mistake, Microsoft and these other companies are not investing billions upon billions of dollars to help humanity. They're doing it to make money. And the only way they're making money is taking away the money, the salaries that were given to humans. Now it goes in their pockets. Anyways, my next example is, <laughs> is, is a wild movie that I don't know if we talked about this one. Again, we've done so many podcasts, but this is 
one of those movies where I'm like, okay, the execution was a little bit like weird, but I loved what he did with it. And, and it is the, okay. the Fountain by Aaron, oh. by Aronofsky. Dude, you, this is, again, man, I, I don't think we've ever mentioned it to my knowledge, but we might have. But this is one of my favorite movies. People talk about the execution not being that great. I love the execution of this movie. I think it's one of the most criminally underrated movies ever. Me too. Me too. I've had the grand opportunity of speaking with Darren Aronofsky. He's actually a fan of the magazine. Amazing. Wow. And, you know, I want to interview him so badly because he's a fan of the magazine and I just think he's such an innovative filmmaker. But the bulk of his stuff isn't sci-fi. Like, he barely has any sci-fi in his work except for one of the three intertwining stories in The Fountain. Yes. The Fountain consists of three intertwining stories set at different timelines or different realities. And one of them is sci-fi. Yeah, and one and, and they all kind of concern. What's cool is they all kind of concern the same thing. In one of the timelines, the MacGuffin they're they're trying to reach is the Tree of Life, right? right? And so the Tree of Life, which gives everlasting life, and the story. I think it was it, so. Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz they play different characters in the different timelines. And at one point, Hugh Jackman is a conquistador, right? And mm. Rachel Weiss is the queen, right, of Spain, who's authorizing this uh, expedition to go to South America and find the tree of life. But in the modern, in the present day timeline, what's happening is that um, Hugh Jackman is a scientist and his wife is dying, right? Of a disease and he's trying to find the cure and it's driving him freaking mad and he's in a race against time which is a common element within a MacGuffin right sure. um, we got the race against time race against time get the MacGuffin before the race against time creates that in, in, in that tension and so he's trying to at the same these this you know going back to the present going back to the past and that flipping of the timelines, he's on this race to get this MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is one, the tree of life, right? To mm -hmm. give ever immortality. The second one, he is fighting for this cure for his wife as she's dying. He loves her more than anything. And then in the future, which is the sci-fi one, I it's my one of my favorite you know, time storylines of any sci-fi, right? Go ahead and describe the, 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 which is, I guess that would be the fountain. Is that the fountain? What is that? I think the fountain just refers to the fountain of youth in sort of an ambiguous way. Gotcha. An ambiguous gotcha. way. Yeah. But, so what's happening in the third vignette is the character is in a biome flying through space mm. and he's alone in the silk contained garden and he's kept alive by eating pieces of the tree of life yes but every time he eats a piece of the tree of life it dies a little bit more and it is just this extremely profound and like honestly trying to describe it without understanding what's happening in the other two vignettes feels like it cheapens it oh for sure for sure yeah yeah when, but when you interweave it with what's going on in the other two storylines it makes it so much more profound and he has to decide when to eat another piece of this tree 
that he's basically slowly killing. And what it relates to is in the the main plot line in the present day, the more time he spends looking for a way to save his wife from this disease that's killing her, the less time he spends with his wife while she's alive. And it really is just heartbreaking and just beautiful in a way that's really hard to describe. And I I don't know if Darren Aronofsky actually listens to this podcast like that. He's a busy individual, so I doubt it. But if you are, Darren, please make another science fiction movie, man. We would all love it so much. I like all your movies, but please make one. Yeah, that that one was, and the theme of that one was so, like you hit on, was so beautiful. It was, first off, the movie is one of the most psychedelic movies, right? It's very, very psychedelic. Flying through space and the meditation and the, to me, it's like, that is it. And, but really it's that idea the ancient idea that what makes life so beautiful is death, right? Yes. And he yes. is that, that he's wrestling with, he's wasting his life, the precious moments of his life, trying to pursue this thing, right? Which is what we all wrestle with anyways. It's like, are we spending our lives living or are we spending our lives working in the idea that one day we will live? Right, that tension. Absolutely. There's a really great line. I can't remember the word for word, so I won't try to butcher it, but there's a really great line in the movie. As a conquistador, when he finally reaches like his goal and there's just that one native warrior standing in his way and he like tries to battle the warrior and uh, the warrior ends up stabbing him. And then he like leans in and he says this line to him about this exact topic about life and death. And it is one of the most chilling and effective moments in film history. Clint Mansell does the score for this movie, and it is just this incredible score. I used to listen to the, just the score while I was writing back in the day, and it's just really is just like a phenomenal. It's gorgeous. The, the effects are amazing. What he did with the effects was he used a lot of macro photography, cinematography, where they shoot in on, instead of using CGI, they shoot in really, 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 really close detail, like different effects, like water and liquid and things that look so psychedelic so that was really cool and one other note on the film is that i believe that he was so aronofsky was so mesmerized by the story i think that he'd been trying to develop it forever and actually did a graphic novel on the oh wow i'm not familiar with that i don't don't even know if it was released i don't know if the graphic novel was released or it was just like more of like storyboard. This is what the story is going to be trying to well, like sell it. But anyways, it was one of the best, most underrated movies. I agree with you on that. What do you got next? Okay, we're running a little low on time. So I'm going to mention these a little bit more quickly so we could kind of wrap this one up. Mm-hmm. My next example is from Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Mm. And what I consider to be the MacGuffin of this is the Namshub of Inky. Okay, so... The story revolves around this computer slash biological virus called Snow Crash, which basically causes systems to crash, both technological systems and the human mind. And trying to describe the plot of this book takes an essay. (laughs) It's got a very intricate plot that deals with ancient Sumerian language cultures and gods and the development of language worldwide, the Tower of Babel just as a backdrop to this, the metaverse and all the stuff happening in real time in the book. But in the lore of this story, Snow Crash, the virus, was actually developed in pre-ancient history. At one point, 
language was all sensible and uniform, where all language was coalescing together, where people, as they met each other, language developed to become understandable for everyone. But then at some point, somebody developed a lingual virus, like a language virus that disrupted this idea and caused language to diverge instead, which language does diverge. Just real quick, just so you guys understand, language automatically diverges in real life. Language is always becoming more divergent. Although more people speak, for example, right now, I think Mandarin is the most widely spoken language in the universe just because so many people live in China. And, you know, English is spread all over the world. But what you have to understand is that there are constantly new words and new phrases and new meanings to existing words and phrases being developed at all times all over the world. And they're used distinctively in distinct pockets of cultures. So even though I speak English, if I were to go to, say, South London and speak to some of the young people there, I would have trouble understanding what they were saying, some of their dialects, some of their slang. Because even though we're speaking the same language on paper, they're saying words and phrases and giving words and phrases meanings that I don't comprehend, and vice versa. So language does diverge. And this goes back to the biblical story of Babel and how the Tower of Babel, God destroyed the Tower of Babel so that language would be confused forever, and then people from different places would not be able to communicate with each other. So that's kind of like what Namshub of Inky, this language virus, that's the purpose of it, is to stop the confusion of language. And it's being kept in a, like a container, like an old ancient container. And it's being held by this really rich character. And the point of this book is to get a hold of the Namshub of Inky to try to stop the spread of the snow crash virus. Wow. Again, this is a really, 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 really overly simplified version of the plot of this book. I think we've talked about this plot pretty recently on a couple of episodes. It's a lot to try to like summarize. Neil honestly. Stevenson is like a very particular, like, almost subgenre in and of himself of sci-fi. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is so cerebral. Right? He is so cerebral. And you really, I love it. I agree. I completely love his work. Um, I've recently read, I think, his book, Seven Eves. And uh, at times, he can just go on and on and on. He almost reminds me of the David Foster Wallace who wrote Infinite Jest. Beautiful right. parts of that book, but a lot of it was like, ah, he reminds me of that with sci-fi. But Snow Crash is just such a pivotal, you know, monument in sci-fi. I talked about how sometimes the MacGuffin is very, very obvious, and then sometimes it's more hidden into the plot. You know, it's not quite so obvious to the reader. And I think this is an example of one that's buried in the plot a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Since I mentioned that at the onset, I thought it was important to give an example like that. Yes. Okay, so what you got for me? This will be the last one for me. And okay. this one is uh, just a really funny one. And that is uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> right? I love how they turn this one. He turned, this is what the book does. And this is why it's so funny. Is he just turns everything inside and out. And that's the humor of it. So usually what uh, characters are seeking is the answer. Right. Well, right. the Chinese Guide to the Galaxy starts with the answer, and the answer is forty-two. 
(laughs) (laughs) What we don't know and what they're trying to find throughout the series is the question. Okay, what is the question? The answer to the universe is 42, right? And so now we know it. Everybody's done and happy. Oh, shit. But we don't know the question. And so now we're searching for the question. And so I wanted to end my list on a humorous one. And so that was one. (laughs) I think that's really cool because that's a really good example. But it also really does show you how this tool can be played with. Yes. There are so many examples of it, you know, pretty straightforward examples, but there are examples of it where it turns the idea on its head. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that is definitely a a great example of that. Yeah. So I'm going to end us off with what I consider to be the ultimate example of the straightforward MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. The example that is just like, wow, that is just literally, they just, the whole story is about a MacGuffin. And that is... Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius's The Inkall. And The Inkall all revolves around The Inkall, which is a jewel-type thing, like an object, literally an object that gives its possessor power. And literally the whole series is all these people trying to get their hands on this object. And The Inkall itself is extremely mysterious, You don't exactly know how it works, exactly what it does exactly, but it sets into motion all of these action, all this political intrigue, all these spiritual and psychological journeys of all of the characters in the story. And they're making this into a movie. Really? Finally. Yeah, the Inkhole is being made into a movie by Taika Watiti. At the approval of Alejandro Jodorowsky, who's, by the way, still out there, still doing stuff. He's 98 years old. And like I said, it's the most straightforward example of a MacGuffin I can think of at all. It's up there with the Maltese Falcon, because the whole point of the story is everybody trying to get their hands on this object that causes literally all of the action of all of the story to take place. So So cool. So cool. We've talked about Mobius many times on this podcast, but if you haven't read The Inkle, do yourself a big favor. It is awesome. It is funny. It is entertaining. It's got like Yodorowsky sort of sentiments, so it's kind of like a little weird sometimes. But Mobius does all of the illustrations, at least the early stuff. I mean, Mobius passed away more than a decade ago. So there have been other artists who've worked on later editions of it, but... Even those are good. They're still good because Yodorowsky still wrote them. But I recommend that a lot too, by the way. Check it out if you haven't. Check out any anything that Mobius did. For so sure. cool. What a great freaking uh, episode again. This one yeah. great. I was really stoked on this. Not, not to toot our own horns here or anything. <laughs> yeah, but no, no doubt. Like this one's been a lot of fun. This, this one ran a little long, but I think that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I think this will be I think this will be our 50th recorded episode I'm pretty wow. sure. But I'm able to work on Sundays now so or if not do you think you're going to be able to work a little later in the evening sometimes? Uh, Sundays are perfect podcast days. That's great for me. Okay, well, I might, it might have to be later in the evening yeah. on a Sunday. Yeah, okay. Cool. On Saturday. I'm okay, cool, man. All right, All right so we're going to we're gonna try to get a little bit back on schedule a little bit more here. And next week, in our next episode, I'm going to tell you about some exciting news with the actual Infinite Worlds magazine, because I know it's kind of been on the back burner, kind of in stasis, but there's some exciting news for that, too. And I'll tell you guys about that next time. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, this was a great one, dude. I'm so glad we got a chance to catch up and let's uh, let's you for next Sunday evening. And uh, yeah, try to do it. All right. All right, man. All right. Thank you so much. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full color ad free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 